This is turning into a great talk. I'm really enjoying this. Yes, this is the podcast, Dr. Molliver, that I talked about. Like this kind of laid back conversation, like being real. I think this is what is missing. Welcome to the Dr. Molliver podcast. Plastic surgery, science, and cool stuff in between. Hello and welcome everyone. This is Tamara from Plastic Touch and today we are speaking about untold truths of plastic surgery, what happens behind the scenes, complications and real life. So today with us is Dr. Clayton Molliver, his surgeon, his professor. Doctor, welcome. Could you tell us how long have you been doing this job for and what kind of surgeries you mostly perform? Okay. So thanks for inviting me. I, I really enjoy teaching, as you know, and I, I enjoy being in front of the camera a little bit as well. I've been a plastic surgeon for 30 years, actually. I started in 1992. I uh, did general surgery training, so I did a full general surgery residency, which doesn't happen very much anymore, but uh, I really enjoyed it. So I operated all over the body. And then I did a plastic surgery residency and finished that in 92. Here in Houston, Texas, was where I'm I'm situated, that's where, where I practice. So I've been practicing for 30 years. I did a lot of breast reconstruction early in my career. Uh, I did a lot of tram flaps and free tram flaps uh, and um, a lot of uh, trauma reconstruction. But I've been do doing only aesthetics for the past 20 years. I do, I do a lot of everything, but in the past, I guess, five or eight years, I've dropped off rhinoplasties, for example, because I just didn't feel like I was doing a lot of them all the time. Uh, to give my patients really the top-notch, cutting-edge kind of results and techniques. So these days, I do a lot of breast surgery. I do, I've do. i done, oh my gosh, I've done over 10,000. We checked with our, our implant manufacturer, over 10,000 breast augmentations. I, I, I couldn't believe it. But I do a lot of breast revisions and breast lifts. Uh, I have a, a sub-niche, a specialty in cinemastia repair, and we can go into that later if you like. I do a lot of body contouring and tummy tucks, and I do some facelifts. My partner, Dr. Fred Aguilar, is really well known in our area, and uh, he does a lot of facelifts. So more and more, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, deferring some of those to him. So you do mostly uh, breast surgeries now and kind of liposuction, abdominoplasties in the past couple of years. Uh, that's, that's, that's where it is right now. A lot of breast surgery, a lot of revision breast surgery, and a lot of body contouring, liposuction, tummy tucks, uh, bra line lifts, uh, brachioplasties or arm lifts, all those sort of things, yeah. So uh, we see a constant debate in our comments on our page. Uh, so there are patients that come to you with different BMIs. Some are in the healthy range, some are overweight, some are obese. And uh, is it safe to perform abdominoplasty on these patients as we know that they have higher blood pressure, heart rate, blood supply regulation works differently. So is it actually safe to perform these surgeries and uh, are rates of complication higher with overweight patients? Well, that's a great question. I think as, as a plastic surgeon, as a physician, you have to assess each patient individually. Um, I'll, 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 I'll veer off for just a moment, then I'll come back to overweight patients. Patients come, come in sometimes, they're 65, they're 70. Um, am I too old for this surgery? Well, we know that 65 and 70 year olds get facelifts all the time, so why shouldn't they get other skin surgeries? We're not inside the abdominal cavity, we're not inside the, the, the chest cavity. So it's not quite, you know, the kind of catastrophe kind of things that can happen, although they, they can, of course. Um, that said, Overweight is another issue entirely. We know for a fact 
that as the BMI, the body mass index, goes from 30 to 35 to 40, that we're on a curve that starts getting very steep and with respect to increased wound complications, pulmonary emboli, um, out of control diabetes, big fluid shifts, um, things, things can go bad in a hurry. And so that's a problem. The other thing I look at in patients is, and, and occasionally I will uh, deviate from my rules. So I've got a hard rule, 35 BMI and over, I won't operate on you. Between 30 and 35, it will be a little bit different for a couple of reasons. One, I'm looking at compressibility. Now we're talking about abdominoplasties. Um, I'm looking at compressibility. Is the abdomen soft? Can I compress it? Because when we lift the skin envelope up, and we want to placate or sew in the muscles. We can't do it very well. And when we can wind up with sutures that tear out, et cetera, if the abdomen is very firm. So one of the things I'll do when I examine a patient is I'll check, is their abdomen softer and, and compressible? Some people carry their weight in their abdomen. Men tend to carry their weight intra-abdominally, visceral fat. Women, not so much, except sometimes they do. Everyone's a little bit different. Some people have a pear shape. Some people carry it all in their abdomen. They have skinny arms and legs. So we really have to individualize. And then another topic along those lines that I really love talking about is women of color. You have a black woman or man come into my office and, you know, the BMI, I might look at the chart before I walk in the room and I'm, and I'll, and I'm saying, oh, you know, the BMI is a little high. I'm going to have to talk to them about diet and weight. And, and I'll, I'll talk to him about those things and say, please come back in three months. Let's see you. But a black person, a woman of color, oftentimes will have a higher BMI and not fit the stereotype of, oh, they've got a 33 or 34 BMI. They're going to be very obese. And you go in and they're actually very muscular and they're not very obese. So body composition matters. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, their body composition matters. So you really have to sort of individualize it. But with a broad stroke, with a broad brush, the heavier you get, the more complications. Um, it, it, it's the truth. Thank you very much for being honest. And uh, as you say, these patients should maybe try to lose weight first, then come back to you after three months. So is it more likely for these overweight patients that get abdominoplasty to come for round two after, since they maybe haven't established healthy lifestyle or habits? Well, I'm not sure where you're going with that. I think there's two topics to talk about. I like the fact that oftentimes, you know, um, even though I'll spend some time with the patient and I'm not, I know I'm not going to operate on with them that, you know, we'll bond. They'll, they'll feel like I, I'm concerned about them. We send them an email with a couple of different weight loss diets that I, I've found really work. Um, there's now great uh, medications, uh, Wagovi and others that you can inject and they really help with weight loss. A lot of people are doing that. Um, so they, they will come back uh, for, for their surgery later. Sometimes I'll just do that lower abdominal flap of skin in a heavier patient and not do the big abdominoplasty just to make their hygiene better, their self-esteem better, to clean things up. And maybe they'll lose weight and we'll come back later and, and, and do, quote, round two and do that full abdominoplasty. But the other topic that's worth mentioning is doing that operation, liposuction or a tummy tuck, which is all superficial. It's outside the abdomen on someone who's overweight you really shouldn't be doing it. And they come back five years later and they say, I need more liposuction, more on my tummy. And you yeah. feel their tummy 
and there's about that much fat or tissue over their abdomen, but their abdomen's gotten bigger. So once that fat is gone from the abdomen, you've done liposuction to the hips. You know, people talk about, well, does the fat come back someplace else? Yes, it does. It comes back on the shoulders, on the hips. Now we have cankles. But it comes back intra-abdominally, and that's really bad for you. And so, you know, sometimes I see a young person, and, uh, you know, they, they really want to get liposuction. And those in particular, I'm looking at them saying, my gosh, you're, you're 18, you're 22, you're 24. What did you gain weight when you, when you graduated high school? What were you when you, you know, two years after, four years after? And you want liposuction? And I can see the whole, the whole thing. You know, I, I can see them when they're 20 and 25 and 30 and 35, and they're, they're, you know, two or three pounds a year or four pounds a year, which turns into 20 or 30 or 50 pounds in 10 years. And I'm doing them a horrible disservice by saying that. And so sometimes I'm kind of rough on them. I'm saying, hey, you need to get things in order here. We need to get more sleep, more exercise, clean eating. So, you know, they say plastic surgeons are psychiatrists with knives. You know, we have a unique opportunity to get very personal with people in a hurry. And I, I kind of like that. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing opportunity. Normally, nobody gets that personal with someone. Um, so we can affect some people if they're, if they're receptive. Uh, so it's, it's a nice opportunity to, to to make a difference, I think. And on the other side, how many of your patients actually keep their results long-term throughout the years? You know, I've been in practice a long time, so I, I, I've got a good vantage point to look at that, and they do. I mean, I, maybe it's because I select well, and I don't select people that are really overweight, that come back for their, you know, sometimes we see people that come in and they, they're hopping from plastic surgeon to plastic surgeon, and they already had their breast reduction. They've already had their tummy tuck. They've already had their liposuction on several episodes. They were, you know, they're just treating obesity. But in my patients, I, I think because I've held the line, I've tried to educate. I have tons of patients that come back and uh, the tummy tuck's doing great, Dr. Mahler. Thank you so much. I'm ready to, you know, reduce my boobs or, you know, my breasts. The big implants were great. They're a lot of fun, but I'm ready for smaller ones. I want to lift. Let's do my face. Uh, so it does. I, I mean, I did tummy tuck on my wife 25 years ago. Still looks great, you know, but she's she's an athlete. She stays in shape and she still looks And good. she's next to you <laughs> as well. <laughs> I keep an eye on her. She keeps an eye on me. Yeah. So why surgeons never publicly speak about complications that happen to their patients? Anyone who says they don't get complications, not telling the truth. So why is it like this? Why is it taboo? You know, I, I think it comes down to marketing. You know, we're, we're, we're very afraid that if we show a complication, people are going to say, I don't want that happening. I'm not going to him. And it's hard to get across in, in that short interview or in a marketing kind of event, you know, being on social media, that number one, it happens to everyone. And number two, because it happens to everyone, meaning plastic surgeons, general surgeons, we, we have complications. Things go awry. You can't always control it. Sometimes it's the patient's fault. Sometimes it's our fault, you know, and, and it's and it's or it's just unfortunate, you know, and people say, well, it's malpractice. Well, there's a difference between malpractice and an unfortunate outcome. You know, complications, they, they do happen. And one of my professors many, many years ago, a guy by the name of Ben Cullen, great teacher, he said to me, you know, hold your patients close, hold your complications closer. And I've tried to pay attention and do that. And I'll tell you, I've cried with my patients, literally cried. You know, I, I, I hold them closer and I see them through the process. And I'm not trying to, you know, 
uh, tout myself or, or toot my horn. But, you know, many people are, are, are ashamed. They're ashamed to have plastic surgery. They're afraid people will judge them. Um, fortunately, I, I think we're moving into an era where, you know, we're trying to get out there the idea of let's not be so judgmental, right? That's not the way I would live my life, but I'm not going to judge you. You know, that, that kind of concept yeah. is, is more prevalent now. And, um, and people are getting more educated with social media. So I, I'm starting to put things out there and saying, we've got a few we've, we've shot and you're, you guys, you guys are going to put it up soon. Um, yeah, I had this complication. We had this complication and, it, and I was heartbroken. She was heartbroken, but you know, with patients that are reasonable, um, they know these things happen. You just have to get them through it and see the process. And um, I think, I think patients that are, are educated and, and thoughtful uh, are going to see that and say, "Okay, you know that that's going to happen." And, and at least this surgeon is going to be honest about it and see it through. But you know, you, you see some websites, and you know, it's only perfect results. Whether it's Photoshop or anything else, yeah. that's another another whole topic. Uh, but you know, we want to show our best our best results. And uh, have you ever told your patient not to worry, everything's gonna be okay? And in your mind, you were thinking like, oh my God, this is definitely not good. So do you show your patients that you're worried about something or you don't want to scare them? You know, I, I think that's a case by case basis. I mean, you really have to read your patients. Some patients are, are you know, very anxiety prone. They have a white coat syndrome. And you know, any little missed up in, in how you speak and the words you choose, they're gonna jump on them. I'm gonna be getting phone calls every day and they're gonna be anxious. And so I, I think as physicians, you're brought along to be very confident and very uh, supportive. Um, and even though you know we're going down a road that might have some problems, they might not be ready to hear it quite yet. And you, you have to judge when, when it's okay to start introducing Look, I, I think we're going to have to tweak this breast. I think we're going to have to do a little bit of liposuction or fat transfer. I would like to get that on the table as soon as possible um, and, and get it out of the way and, and be very transparent. Um, but sometimes you have to just walk delicately and, and be caring that you don't frighten someone. So it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dance, you know. That is good. And uh, as you said, you are a psychologist as well. You have to read people, see how they react, and just be very careful with patients. You know, years ago in plastic surgery, um, they, they would actually ask people to fill out a form, which was a psych psychology evaluation form. And if they felt, fell into certain categories, we were taught, don't operate on this person because they're, they're not going to react very well. We don't do that anymore. But most of us are, are assessing the patients. And I like to say that, you know, I'm interviewing the patient to see, are they crazy? You know, are they very insecure? Are they very particular? Uh, I often say, so tell me, when you leave your house in the morning, do you straighten all your pillows? No one's going to be there, but do you straighten them all? And I get a lot of patients saying, oh, yeah, that's what I do every morning. That's not a, that's not a, I can't operate on you thing. But it, it informs me on, are they very, very particular? Expectations in surgery are in aesthetic surgery are everything. You know, there might be, you know, no two breasts are alike where, you know, they're sisters, they're not twins. Some people will accept the fact that there's going to be mild changes one side or the other. Some people won't accept it at all. Some people want perfect. Perfect scares me, scares the heck out of me. So I'm listening for every word. I'm listening to it. 
But as much as I'm interviewing them, I expect them to be interviewing me. I might not be the right doctor for them. They, they may need someone else, someone who's less direct. My patients tell me all the time, or they, they talk about me. He's very direct. I think that means I don't pussyfoot around. But, you know. I think that is good, actually. So they know exactly what's going to happen, what should they expect. And could you tell us what was the scariest uh, complications you had or some scariest moment in surgery that happened to you? Oh, gosh. Um, in plastic surgery, I mean, you have to understand, in my early training, I was, uh, I was at a level one trauma center. And for one year, I was the chief resident. And because it was a smaller program, but still a level one trauma center, it was in El Paso, um, I was the only chief resident for an entire year. So I, I had horrible, you know, gunshot wounds to the chest and, and, you know, just terrible, terrible injuries that I took care of. And those were scary and, and people died, but it's a whole different thing. In my current life as a plastic surgeon doing aesthetic surgery, thank God we've never, I, I've never had a death. I, I, in fact, in, in fact, I think we've had one patient have to go to the hospital in 25 years, actually get admitted and she wound up being fine. Um, but we've, I've had, I had one episode uh, just a few years ago where um, the patient went into heart block and we were, we were operating on them and I actually had to do CPR on the patient. Turns out that we, 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 we transported her, well, we should transport her to the hospital. She stayed overnight and they said, she's fine. She just is a, just in, in athletes, um, they, they, can, they can have a very low blood pressure. I think she was partially an athlete, but she partially had some sort of cardiac ab electrical abnormality, but it wound up being fine. And we wound up, you know, operating on her uh, about three months later and as the cardiologist treated her and whatever, but it, it turned out to be nothing dangerous, but she dropped her heart rate to like almost nothing. And we, and we had, I had to start CPR it scared the hell out of me um, because her heart rate was dropping and, and that does happen in some people, but as long as their blood pressures are okay or the, anesthesiologist can maintain it it's fine and they usually come out of it and everything's fine but she wasn't coming out of it so that scared me but you know i think when you go through training you know people sometimes say to me well how do you stay so calm when you know things aren't going so well you know with with enough years of training and training like i went through you, you sort of um adjust to sort of slow down the gears a little bit to to take care of the problem correctly. I, sometimes you see people just get all excited and that doesn't help anybody. So, Yes, that's just what I wanted to ask you as well. Sorry to interrupt. So uh, surgeons learn new th things throughout the years. And could you explain to us how did you feel when first time in your life you experienced some complication or something unexpected? Were you nervous or, or were you calm as you just told us? Well, I think this is a transition. I mean, I went through six years of general surgery training and early on, you know, you get called to a code and you're the junior person on, on, on a code group and you're excited and you're nervous and you're running and, and they're, they're saying, okay, Clay, you know, your turn to start doing this. You have to put a chest tube in, you have to do CPR, you have to open the chest. I mean, this is kind of gross stuff for a lot of people listening, but that's what we did. We're trauma surgeons. Um, and, it, and, and your heart races and you get pretty nervous and excited. And then as the years go on, you see so much of it. I don't think you get you get numb to it, but you just you, your brain changes in how you approach this and, and you just get more methodical. One of my professors, um, I was running to a code. He said, don't run. I said, well, it's a code. He said, walk quickly. Don't run. 
I think there's probably time to run. But what he was trying to say to me is gather yourself, gather yourself, focus. You'll do a much better job um, than than running. But as far as, you know, I had several in my trauma years, especially I had a little girl that was um, perhaps, I think, uh, eight years old. I don't want to go into details, but her, her, her sister got in the car a little bit older. I think she was 12 or so. And her parents let her start the car and she accidentally threw it in gear. And it was a terrible, terrible accident. And the, the other daughter was outside the car. It was, it was terrible. Uh, and she came in and, and we lost her in the emergency room. And it was just I, I literally went outside and cried it was just so heartbreaking i'm, I'm getting teary now yeah me as well. this is a very very yeah. sad story and then there was another one um where a gentleman had a horrible horrible car accident we were able to get him to the operating room but we, we lost him on the table and i went out to talk to his identical twin brother Oof. yeah that was that was pretty that was pretty painful there was others but those were two that jump out at me yeah, that you remember that strongly affected you. Yeah, they stay with you. And I, yeah. you know, I did trauma surgery for a short time. I can't imagine people that do it all the time in big cities and big, you know, places. And every single day, yeah. different cases. So it might be hard mm -hmm. for your mental, yes. uh, but you have to be strong and yeah. surgeons see things every single day. Uh, while we're talking about it, could you tell us what well, affects- Well, let, let me, let, let me yeah. back up as a plastic surgeon. Um, people don't realize that we are still doctors. And so you think of us as, oh, I'm gonna do a breast augmentation. Oh, I'm gonna do a facelift. But if you keep your wits about you and remember you're a doctor, I mean, unfortunately, as you get more and more specialized, you sort of put blinders on, you, you just don't even see the other stuff. But um, there's been you know, many cases where someone's come in and I've walked out of the room and said, oh my gosh, that person's got cancer. Um, I examine someone's breast and it's like, uh, yeah, that that's a very suspicious mass. And, um, you know, there's been many cases where I've, I've caught it early and referred them on. And, and, and that's been uh, gratifying. But you still have to be a doctor. You still have to look at things. I've caught, I, I've diagnosed people with all kinds of things. And, and, you know, most of us have because you see someone and, you know, they're they're jaundiced or, or they've got their a big belly. And it's it's not because they're fat. They've got a they've got a big ovarian tumor or they've got ascites, fluid in the abdomen. So, you know, we still see people every day and they come in for one thing and it's not that at all. You know, it's something completely different and, and you gotta send them back and get them worked up and, and get them treated. Uh, so you can't just sort of kind of blindly say, oh, you came in for a tummy tuck, let's do a tummy tuck. You know that there's practices in, the, in our country where I swear to God, this is true. I, I am appalled by it, but you actually call in or come in and you're seen by a patient coordinator who schedules you for surgery and you meet your doctor the morning of surgery. That happens and it's horrible um, because you know, we're still doctors. We have to evaluate people and sometimes they think they need this and you look at them and say, that's not what's going on at all. It's this. What affects surgeons' performance? So if you're feeling that day nervous, sad, uh, you're just not feeling like doing the surgery, does that affect the outcome? That's a great question. Um, and let me, let me put it to you this way. Um, I think uh, there's a couple of areas that I think I'm, I'm very cautious about and I think do affect a person. Uh, it doesn't matter how, how many years you train and how, how you're good at it. 
a microsurgeon can sit there for six hours and do microsurgery. As you get older, that, that ability gets less. Um, what we do is hard. We, we are very physical. We're doing liposuction. We're bending over and twisting to look under into a breast, into a tummy. And, you know, over the years, you know, that, that can wear on you. I go to the gym five days a week and I run to stay fit so I can lengthen my career because I love what I do. So being fatigued absolutely hurts what you're doing because people tend to say, that's good enough. Instead of saying, it's not quite how I like it. I think I need to take down those sutures and redo that one little area, take a little bit more tissue off that breast, take that implant out, put this implant in, set them up. Ah, that looks better. But let's face it. If you've been at it for 10 hours, you're going to say, that's good. That's fine. Yeah. It, and, and then the patients come back and they, and they come to me and I'm, I'm sure it's happened to me too. But what the patients say, you know, is, well, the doctor kept on telling me it'll be okay. It'll be okay. Just wait. It'll be okay. It's got to drop in. The swelling has to go down. And, you know, we're four months out, we're six months out, like it ain't changing, you know, there's a problem here. And, you know, wh whether it wasn't recognized, whether they were going too fast, trying to get more cases in the day, we're a little bit in retail medicine, right? Um, and, you know, if we do three breast augmentations in a day, we make money. If we do five, we make more money. If we do 10, we can make even more money. Oh, heck, let's go around the clock. Well, there's some doctors that literally operate till seven and eight at night. You're fatigued, you're tired, you're not doing your best work. It's it just, it's just, you're not, you're not as focused. You know, there's, there's certainly that part of it. So in some countries, they don't let you operate. They say, nope, you can't be a doctor. You can't be a surgeon past a certain age. A friend of mine in Switzerland had to retire after 65. They said, sorry, we know your cognitive, there's cognitive decline. Is there in everybody? No, but there's enough that they feel like they just got to draw the line. So, um, yeah, what we do, you know, it's very important, the decisions we make and how we do them physically. Um, so let alone, you know, people that get in trouble with drugs, you know, they're partying all night. I, I go out with my friends. I say, sorry, it's a school night. I got surgery tomorrow morning. I'm not drinking. Or if I am, I'm having one small You're drink. You're not going Obviously, to risk it. You know, you can't, you can't risk it. And, you know. For someone, this is like the, 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 the biggest, one of the biggest events in their life, their mommy makeover, and you're out till 11 o'clock at night, you know, having a great time with your buddies, and you don't get enough sleep, and you get there in the morning, I mean, you know, that can't be good, right? I mean, we just, we know that intuitively, we know that, so. Yeah, for sure. So, have you ever canceled someone's surgery on surgery day because you weren't feeling well, something happened? What was the reason for it, if it ever happened? Well, you know, um, I don't get sick very often. My staff knows when I, when, I, when, I, when I call in and say I'm not coming in, that's like twice in a career. I mean, it's like that, that, that's how often it's happened. You know, really bad flu or something. But if, I, if I've got a cough, if, I, if I've got a cold, um, I'm, I'm going to work. I mean, you know, take some antihistamines, do what you have to do, and, and, uh, and, and take care of things. So th there's that. On the other hand, We've canceled plenty of surgeries. Oh, my dear, you're pregnant. We can't operate on you. The pregnancy test. Oh, your nicotine test came back positive. I don't. I'm. I know that you say it was just secondhand smoke, but that doesn't really happen. You're positive. In some cases, I I can go ahead, depending on the surgery I'm doing. In some cases, we're not doing it. Um, so there's there's various reasons. You know, people come in and say, okay, you were NPO, you didn't eat, right? It's like, no, I had breakfast this morning. Okay, you're canceled. You know, so. <laughs> 
So sometimes patients just don't do what they're supposed to do. Uh, so there's the patient end of it, and there's the, the physician end of it. Um, I, I don't cancel very often for me because because you know I'm extremely motivated. I mean that's that's I'm a type A personality. I mean I'm just I'm you know very regimented, but. And how many of your surgical results, maybe in percentage, you can say you are happy with them, you can tell yourself, oof, I've done such a good job here. Oh, that's, that, that, that's unfair. <laughs> <laughs> we're perfectionists, you know, if we're really, really, really honest, you know, uh, it's a smaller percentage than we'd like to admit that are perfect. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I can't answer that. I'm not going to answer that one. Yeah. Uh, because okay. you can always you can always critique if you're honest and, and really honest with yourself. You can critique it and say that could have been a little bit better. I mean, I don't know how many times I've walked into a room. This happens to every surgeon. If there's any surgeons listening to this, they'll say, "Oh yeah, that's what happens." Um, you know, you, you ask how many times uh, have I? What percentage are perfect? Are just the way I want it? Um, and my answer to that is is a story is is a common a common story, and that is you walk into the see the patient, and they go, Doctor Oliver, I'm so happy. This is so great. It's such an improvement. And you look at them and you go, you know, I think we can do something here. And they go, Oh, really? And you know, I think we can improve this and blah blah blah. And, you know, whichever way it goes, maybe they say no, I don't care. Maybe they say okay. And you walk out of the room, and your nurse looks at you and says, Really, really? Did you have to say anything? She was totally happy. And you're picking at something little tiny. Shut up! Don't say anything. She's fine, or he's fine, or whatever. Every surgeon can relate to that. Uh, so, you know. So no results are perfect. Uh, you're going to achieve best possible at the given moment. So we know that surgeons' technique, patients' genetics, post-operative care play the most important roles. So how much does it truly depend on you, and how much of the rest of the factors? Well, you know, it's a little ego thing here. I'd like to believe that a lot of it depends on the surgeon. I mean, I, I try to be as meticulous as I can. I'm very proud of my suture lines. I, I started practicing that when I was a medical student, going to the emergency room, sewing, sewing, sewing. Um, but it, it, you're right, and you're very astute, and you've been doing this a while, so you, you know the lingo, you know the, the, the dialogue. I mean, some of it's uh, genetics, right? You have uh, black patients, you have Asian patients. Very challenging because they can form very thick scars, you know, no matter what you do. In the best of hands, they can form hypertrophic scars. Having said that, I revise a lot of people's scars because, frankly, there's some people that just rush it along or they're not closing or they're not paying attention to all the surgical principles we know. Wounds under tension tend to be they, they widen or uh, if they're not closed with enough layers, they, they tend to dip in or they widen. Um, if, if in, in people of color, if you, you don't get the skin edges just right and one edge dives into the other, well, that, that epithelium keeps on growing and that forms, forms thicker scars. So, you know, is there diabetes controlled? Is there hypothyroidism controlled? Is there obesity controlled? When you go through surgical training, you're taught to optimize your patient. Now, if it's an emergency, well, optimization is out the window. You just do the best you can. But if it's elective or semi-elective, you know, we know you don't heal well if your hemoglobin A1C is through the roof because your diabetes is totally out of control. We know, you know, if you're a smoker that you don't oxygenate your tissues very well. And if we're going to be transposing a flap, a, a skin flap, a muscle flap, 
It has diminished blood supply and diminished oxygen for a while until it acquires more oxygen when it's in the healing process. But if you're a smoker, if you're severely anemic, um, if you have some collagen vascular disease, that one's not going to be that one's not going to heal very well. So optimizing patients is vital, and people who, who just kind of plunge on through, um, you know, they fall into big traps. Which, which actually brings up a really good topic. I, I once uh, talked to my one of my residents about this, and that is um, one of my residents um, uh, once said, "What would you What would you tell young doctors um, to be successful?" And there's two topics there. How to say no. I think no is probably the most important um, thing you can you can know about and 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 embrace in life. But particularly as, as a cosmetic or a plastic surgeon, no to to um, no to patients. You, you, I can't operate on you. You're not a good you're not a good candidate. But the trap people fall into, particularly these days or maybe any time, is you know you go through a lot of years of training. You know I went through, uh, you know got graduated high school, four years of college, four years of med school, six years of general surgery training, two years of plastic surgery training. My wife has known me since I was 15. We're married 42 years. She says, are we ever going to be able to pay bills and live reasonably? Because we both came from pretty humble beginnings. You get out of training, uh, and these days it's a little bit shorter. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I'm making a good living now. I want that Maserati. I want that Ferrari. I want that house on the golf course. And okay, you know, I, I see. I say to my residents, don't fall in that trap. Live humbly, at least for a while. Because, you know, it all it all sounds and looks good until your 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 income and your expenses are starting to get instead of having a good margin of income, it's starting to get closer because you're living way over your means. And you have to make that car payment and that house payment. And you you bought your spouse, you know, a, a twenty thousand dollar watch. And let's be honest, we, we make a lot of money. And then patients come in and this is where this idea of retail medicine, patients come in and they say, oh, I want a tummy tuck. And in your mind, you're saying, you know, she's not a great candidate, but it's money. I've got bills to pay and I got kids that want this and, and the house is my, my second house and my, my cars and blah, blah, blah. And you start doing things you shouldn't do, you know, and, and then you get, a, you get a bad result. And then you get many bad results. And then, you know, it kind of gets known that you don't very get very good results. And guess what? Your practice starts going in a bad direction, let alone what you've harmed patients. And it, it sets you off in a, in a horrible direction. So you got to keep on doing the right thing, no matter no matter what's going on. The, the economy goes down. There aren't as many patients because, you know, we're at the vagaries of the economy to some extent uh, in certain practices. I'm, 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 I've been very successful, but you, you have to watch yourself. It doesn't matter what's going on in your personal life. You have to do the right thing because it's it's people you know you, you, i mean that you think that would be obvious but plastic surgeons in particular but doctors in general it's probably lawyers and everybody else fall into that trap we all we're human right we fall into that trap and um it's 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 uh, insidious and it's it's scary um but you just gotta keep it keep it yeah for sure it happens in every single profession the more successful you get uh the bigger the ego is payments, expenses. So everything should be well balanced in life. Lead, 
exactly right. Well said. I don't think I can make that a live a balanced life, live live within your means. Um, you know, be humble. Um, I'm I'm so grateful and so fortunate from where I came. I'm a first generation American. My father came here when he was 13 from Poland. I, I I'm I'm so grateful for for what his life has given me. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. You I work hard, hard so for it too. Yeah. I think I deserve it, but. <laughs> Um, you still got to keep things in perspective, right? So, yes. So let's touch up a bit on uh, tummy tuck complications and things that happen. So, what are some of the most common complications that patients experience? You know, um, so they, they they experience scars that that don't uh, look very good. Uh, they experience scars that are too high on their tummy because they're not planned well. Um, and they just mark them and they do it when they close or under tension and they pull up because of the way you, you uh, planned your surgery. Um, a poor scar around the belly button because, and no, attention to detail, planning, you know, reading what other people do. We've got a great opportunity to read all these articles and, and, and you know, see what other people do, go visit what other people do. Um, the, the most devastating one is, is the tissue dies, okay? And I think we're going to post one on this here pretty soon about one of my cases. I posted one last year of someone that came to me. We all see these. Um, someone does a tummy tuck and that big flap of skin that we're gonna pull down has a very diminished blood supply. If it's under too much tension, if the patient's a smoker and they didn't you know, stop smoking or they go back to smoking, I've had patients wear a belt too tight because they are really proud of their results or so they're wearing the abdominal binder super tight, that will diminish the blood supply and you'll have um, you'll have an area that necrosis that dies of its skin. It could be little bitty along the wound, which will make a, a poor wound, or it could be bigger. And I had one it was about, oh gosh, about seven by eight centimeters or so. And a big area of skin just died. And um, I think I, you know, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's terrible. And, you know, whose fault is it? Well, you know, besides that, because can be the patient's fault, you know. They don't they don't drink enough fluids. They're drinking a bunch of coffee. This is a diuretic, so they're not they're not they don't have enough fluid on board. Um, maybe they're smoking, or maybe you know you close it a little bit too tight, uh, or 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 maybe they're a little bit older and they have high blood pressure. The one that I think we get in trouble with most often is lipoabdominoplasty. So we're liposuctioning the the fatty tissue of the abdomen because it's a little bit too full, maybe in the upper abdomen. Sometimes people carry it up there. And when we pull that skin down, it tends to thin out, but it's still too thick and it's not going to give a very attractive look. So we're, we're lipoing a little bit. It's very safe unless you overdo it. And if you overdo it, then the blood supply to the end of that flap gets diminished and you can have it die. And I had one of those um, just about, uh, about a year ago. And I, I don't think I've ever had one quite like this. And um, it, there's not a lot you can do except just let it heal in. Make sure you don't get a secondary infection, monitor them carefully, keep, see them frequently as I did, and then it heals in. And then you have to wait. And there's a trap also. You you tend to get pushed by the patients. Oh, you got to fix this now. You got to fix this yeah. now. You don't want to jump in too early. There's a period when there's a lot of vasculature and it's going to bleed like crazy. And then you're going to have you know, a lot of scar tissue. So you really have to sort of just kind of wait, wait. It's going to be okay. Keep them closer. Hug them a lot. I hug a lot of my patients. Um, and then when she was about a year out and the tissues were nice and soft and supple, I took that area out and I re-advanced skin flash from the side. And she wound up with a fine line scar from her belly button all the way down. But 
Now, if we look at her pre-op pictures, it's a vast improvement. She says, I'm cool. I thank you for repairing me. Um, which, which brings up another topic. Who pays for all this, right? Who pays for complications? Who pays for unfavorable results? That's a whole inter interesting conversation. We can we can talk about it another time. But, you know, there's there, that's an interesting dilemma, both for surgeons, for patients, for, every, for everybody, because uh, complications happen. I got to touch up this. I got to touch up that. We have to do surgery again. And how, do, and how do you handle that? So thanks for listening to part one. If you're interested in hearing more behind the scenes about plastic surgery, listen to part two next.